Let's pray. Father, do speak to us now as we need it. Instruct us, encourage us, exhort us and show us Jesus Christ. Show us your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. This is a sermon about repentance. Repentance means change. Change of mind, change of heart, change of attitude, change of action. Sometimes relationships can get stuck. They get frozen solid by old events, old attitudes, old decisions. They get stuck in a bad pattern, in a kind of rotten state. This can be true of our relationships with other people. It can also be true of our relationship with God. In God's mercy, sometimes he forces change upon us. He forces us to reassess our lives, our ways. He forces us to try something new, something we know we need and that others need, and something that is in the end better. Today, we rejoin the family of Jacob, a family that is stuck in an unhappy place, but they are being forced to change, to repent. So I want to look at the story and then give some reflections on it. We're in Genesis 42:29 to 43:15, that first reading from the Old Testament that Glenda brought. And the story is really the story of Jacob becoming willing to let his son Benjamin go down to Egypt. That's what happens in the story. And if you're here and you haven't been at St Edmund's for this series of sermons, let me give you a little previously in Genesis spiel. Joseph, the favoured son of Jacob, who is also known as Israel, Joseph was sold into slavery by his resentful brothers. In uh, Egypt, in slavery, Joseph has this unlikely rise to power until he becomes, after some years, effectively the prime minister of Egypt, the kind of second only to the the pharaoh, the sovereign. Uh, His brothers then come before him after so many years when they arrive in Egypt seeking to buy grain during a famine. And he recognises them, but they don't recognise him. He accuses them of being spies, detains one of them, Simeon, as a hostage and demands that the youngest son who hasn't come to Egypt on this trip be produced in order to verify their story. To top it all off, as they depart back north to Canaan, to home, Joseph orders that their money that they gave to pay for the grain be secretly hidden in their grain sacks. And we see the results of all this at the beginning of uh, our passage in 42, 29 to 36. When they get home to Canaan, they have to tell Jacob what has happened, how disastrously really the trip has gone in many ways, that Simeon is still there as a hostage and if they want to go back for any more grain, Benjamin must go as a condition of any further transaction and getting Simeon back. And when they find the money in their sacks, well, everything gets worse because what is the money doing there? They know that they paid for the grain, but the fact that it's back in their sacks 
What, what message are they supposed to receive? Has the Lord in Egypt, who accused them of being spies, was so hostile, has he just set them up, basically, for when they return, him to accuse them of stealing the grain? So, returning to Egypt is extremely complicated. One, they've got to take Benjamin. Two, who knows what they'll be accused of when they arrive. Now, Jacob is not a kind of glass-half-full fellow. Verse 36, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. No, kind of, well done for getting the grain at least. We can eat. Reuben then steps up and makes a bad situation even worse. Like his attempt to reassure Jacob that the brothers can be trusted with Benjamin, it's completely misjudged. He says, you may put both my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. And this just crystallizes Jacob's refusal. He hasn't actually said no yet, but now he does. He says, my son will not go down there with you. Jacob only has eyes for his precious. The only son he has left who is born of his favoured wife, Rachel. As he says, his brother is dead. He's thinking of Joseph. And he, Benjamin, is the only one left. Jacob has been kind of disfigured. He's been made ugly by his inability to cope with Joseph's presumed death. And he's fixated on Benjamin as a kind of Joseph substitute. He's become a bit like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, if you like. And here things rest until they've eaten all the grain that they've bought. And so we get to part two, Judah's breakthrough. Because there is a problem that isn't going away. The famine is not letting up. And Jacob knows that the only answer is another trip to Egypt. Verse two, go back and buy us a little more food. And Judah reminds him what would be needed. Verse five, if you will not send Benjamin, we will not go down. Because the man said, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And at first, you read in verses 6 and 7, the kind of useless bickering that followed. It's the same old blame game. The family is completely stuck. And then Judah makes his proposal. He does not offer his son's lives, but he offers his own liability for whatever happens to Benjamin. Verse 9, I myself will guarantee Benjamin's safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. And how different this Judah is to the Judah of Genesis 37, way back at the start of the story, where where Judah's contribution to the discussion was, come, let's sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. We can get some money for him. This is a very different kind of proposal. Back then, he was animated by resentment of the chosen favoured son and he became that son's betrayer but now well Judah has accepted hasn't he that Jacob look he just he favours Rachel's sons and what can you do I could get all huffy about it and I could 
fight it and I could make him pay for it. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be not my brother's betrayer, but my brother's keeper. Here is an act of repentance, a decision to set aside any envy or resentment, a decision to do things differently. What he did back then regarding Joseph, he will not do with respect to Benjamin. And these words from Judah, they reach Jacob. And he too repents. He repents of his refusal to let Benjamin go. It may not be joyful repentance, verse 11, oh, if it must be, but it is handsome and thorough. He could have said, okay, then take him and be gone. Now I'm going to go and sob myself to death. But he doesn't do it that way. He says, put some of the best products of the land in your bags. Take double the amount of silver with you. Take your brother also. Jacob is finally on board with this let's save the family plan and he calls on God to make it succeed. He puts his own grief in second place. He's willing to risk his precious son. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Well, that's the story, really. The story of a father becoming willing to give his beloved son in order that his people may live. The story of a son becoming willing to be his brother's keeper when he hadn't been before. Here are two reflections on it. Firstly, well, the biggest story of the Bible is the story of the father giving his beloved son in order that his people may live. This happens not just for Jacob, but for his grandfather Isaac. Isaac, sorry, his grandfather Abraham. Abraham gave up Isaac. He was willing to sacrifice him and received him back alive. Jacob favoured Joseph and mourned him as dead for years, but we'll see him back again yet. But Jacob yielded Benjamin up in order that food might be found for many. And of course, you know, the famous verse of the Bible, one I've mentioned several times already in my less than a year at St Edmunds here, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. John 3.16. Or we could have Rome from Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, who gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the big story of the Bible. The father who gives his beloved son that his people may live. Jacob may have made his sacrifice grudgingly, forced by circumstances, but God the Father gives his son graciously. He need not give his son to save. We could not bring any pressure on God to give his son. We have no claim and no leverage with God. God's love and God's 
giving of his son comes from him. Entirely from him, freely from him, according to his own will and choice. It's undeserved by us, it's unearned by us. It comes from him in order that death might not claim us, but that we might live with him. This gift we receive by faith. That is, by believing that it is given to us. By entrusting ourselves to that gift and to the giver of the gift, to Father and to Son. We receive this gift by faith, that is, by asking for it to be ours. And by living upon the basis that it is ours. And this is the heart of our relationship with God. This is the way we enter his kingdom, the way we become his children, the way we live with him, receiving his gift by faith. There's the first reflection. The big story of the Bible is the story of the father giving his beloved son in order that his people might live. Here's the second reflection. It's a question. Can you be like Judah? In two senses. Firstly, can you put aside a grievance, maybe a legitimate grievance, in order that life can get better for you and for others? Judah might have been quite understandably pretty hacked off about Jacob's whining. Everything is against me. Benjamin is the only one left. He's standing there with nine of his sons. Ten of them, actually. Judah might have been hacked off, but he decides to do all he can to solve this problem, to break this impasse, and he pledges himself to his self-pitying father. You can hold me personally responsible. Can you put aside a grievance like that in order that life can get better? In doing that, Judah makes a breakthrough. But in a second sense, Judah's proposal, his act was an act of repentance. And so let's ask, can you repent of your sins? You know, Judah once betrayed and sold a favoured son, but now he will be his brother's keeper. There are many things that we can't change about ourselves. Can't change your height or your personality. That's who you are. However, we aren't powerless. We do have some choice, some agency. And we can ask ourselves, is there something we need to change? Judah changed something. It may not have been easy for him, but he did it. Is there something we should change? Some attitude to a person or a situation that we're in. A decision that we made once and have kind of kept on making, but should be made differently. Is there a way of behaving that leads to nothing but rotten things, leads to nothing good that we should change, we should repent of? The repentance, the change of heart of Judah elicited in reply the repentance, the change of heart of Jacob. And it's put this family back on the road to life and peace. They're not there yet. There's a way to go. But that's where we're going. And so let me ask you, is God calling you 
for your repentance, your change of heart and mind? Is there something you can do to put you and others on the road to life and peace? In other words, can you, will you repent? Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for your grace, your generosity, that you gave your beloved Son in order that we might live. And you did this without being forced to do it, but freely, graciously, by your own choice and out of your own love for us. Help us to receive this gift and live by faith in it. And Lord, part of that will mean for us asking ourselves, can we repent of our sins? Can we recognise that we can change our minds, change our hearts, change our attitudes to make things better for us and for others? So Lord, if we need to do that, give us the strength to do it, the eyes to see how to do it, and do us good, Lord, through our own repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.